right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with the musician Blaze Bailey about the supernatural, Shakespeare, the connection between theater and live performance, stage fright, his time with Iron Maiden, new music, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Also, a brief shout out to my friends Ben and Chelsea, who are huge Iron Maiden fans and are going to be listening to this. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. You are listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. I'm Blaze Bailey. Stay with us. This is the best show in the world. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Blaze, if you don't mind, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Yeah, I think I'm a fort builder and a book reader, really. Mm. I'm not really a troublemaker because we lived on a small farm, really small, with some ducks, geese, a few pigs, a couple of goats, and really, that's trouble right there. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm not making trouble. I'm in trouble because basically if you put a foot wrong, you are being chased by a goat. <laughs> so Yeah, that's some trouble. So that's it. I did enjoy making things because there's plenty of resources and I was lucky because it was countryside. You could walk down to the stream, you could go in the fields, you could climb a tree, all of that. So I'm lucky really. Those very early years, you know, from about three to ten years old, it was in the countryside. So I think that's a great start when you walk out the front door and it's not a bunch of houses. You walk out the front door, it's a field, there's a a few outbuildings and stuff like that. And your mom is just not worried about where you are or anything. So I was playing, you know, so that was it. My mom once ran me over. <laughs> yeah, my mum would run me over, and when I got up, I said, "You just run over my leg." She bashed me around the head and said, "Stop messing around the car." <laughs> that was it. I was messing around the car, and it was on some soft ground. So obviously, I was exaggerating there for dramatic effect. But my mum was just creeping forward, moving the car, right. And I'd fallen off the car, and she ran over my leg. But it was big, fat tires, so it just rough, and it wasn't a big thing. I was like, "Oh, you've run over my leg!" She just stop messing around the car. <laughs> I was, I was bought up tough in that way. Uh, oh, don't moan when you get your leg run over. <laughs> hey, you learned your lesson, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so did you uh you said you like to read books did you have any maybe an author that you lean towards or maybe a genre well, we didn't so we didn't have a tv it's back in those days not everybody had a tv but a lot of people did but my mom she didn't get a tv we lived alone she was a single mom uh, at that time and we had a radio and when when she could afford it she didn't buy a tv she bought a good stereo and we listened to the radio at night so i'd listen to music that was on the radio but also you know broadcasts on uh, bbc Mm. radio 4 where you'd have plays and things like this and then books i suppose just starting off with enid blyton and gerald burroughs i think it was and and we had a visiting library which was a, a big van that, that came around 
and then at school you could get money off the books and mm. all of that. So yeah, I, I, I did. I didn't have a, a favourite author, but I like science fiction and I like fantasy. I suppose there's many people when they're, when they're 10, 11, you know, 9, 10, 11, you started to get interested in reading. I had learning difficulties in so much as I was dyslexic, but I wasn't diagnosed dyslexic. Later on, I found out that. So I was called lazy and... I was very, they kept me in when the other kids went out to play, it, you know, in a, in the playground, they're all out there. You're staying in cause you're lazy. Cause you're not, you refuse to do the work. I didn't know until later that it's because, you know, you're dyslexic. You have to learn to read in a slightly different way. Right. Put these letters in, learn to, you're learning to spell. You have to do that in a slightly different way to be able to, to get that going. Much later on, I had examinations, but do you know what? Way back then, dyslexia, some teachers refused to believe it. They said, it doesn't exist, someone's made that up. These are lazy kids. And they found this word dyslexia, the psychologist, to but what they've actually found is another form of laziness. So, Anyway, I was very lucky in that one teacher saw that actually I could read okay, but it was just writing, spelling. That was where I had the problems. And they encouraged me to read. Mm. So that stayed with me then. So I went from, you know, like when I'm six and seven, I went from the bottom in reading and all that to right near the top of the class in being able to read, but I still couldn't spell. Mm. And that also affected uh, math and everything. But I managed to to get through anyway. But yeah, that encouraged me with reading. And as a course, I went through, I suppose, high school, secondary school, in my teens. Then I lied my way through a lot of it because I just couldn't do the homework. I didn't know how to do it and all of that. And when I finished school, I found myself in my 20s, early 20s, 2021. And I'm like, I feel as done as a cheese sandwich. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know what? So I started then to read again. And in British culture, a root of British culture is Shakespeare. And the amount of references to Shakespeare is just incredible when you know. But when you don't know, you wonder where these phrases come from and all of that. So I started to read Shakespeare and some good books when I was in my early 20s. I went to see every Shakespeare play. I'm very lucky. We live near Stratford-upon-Avon, mm -hmm. which has got the Royal Shakespeare Company there. And I was lucky. I saw them in order and all of that. And it, I started to see culture and the references in modern literature and newspapers unfold. And I felt like I woke up to the world. So I really feel that a big part of my education is when I started to investigate Shakespeare in my early 20s and, you know, coming up to 25 and around that time. And, of course, that's been an influence in my work and in my lyrics. And I used to collect movies of Shakespeare as well. I got, had, like, five different versions of Macbeth. Mm. And great, like, different copies of Macbeth. I love that play. All of that. So that was really some a part of my education where... I felt like I educated myself after school. So it's not hopeless. Not right. knowing anything at school, feeling dark fit, that's not hopeless. It's just, well, that's what you're with and you work. You work with what you got. I still, I got into a band. I'm dyslexic. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't really spell right. I could write my lyrics though, the way that I could understand them. When I was working, my first job in a hotel, 
I worked night shift, had a baby grand piano in the ballroom, I had a few hours to myself sometimes at night if I got my work done. I started, exp- I didn't know about piano, I but you press one key at a time, <laughs> it's always in tune. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, all right, yeah, you know, so, so I don't write my first songs. And then, you know, I you know, started getting into heavy metal and and all of that. But I think it's, I never thought that I, because my dyslexia and I never really saw it as a disability. I saw it as something that, okay, that's just a part of me. There's a workaround. And that's, mm. how, that's how I felt, which I was lucky, I suppose, in that way. Right. You've got me curious now, depending on what what years you were going to the West End for theater, you could have saw some giants on, on the theater stage. Olivier yeah, or I, McClellan or uh, yeah, Patrick I, Stewart. I, I, I saw a few people, but I'll tell you the big one is I saw an interview with Kenneth Branagh on BBC News one morning. And uh, so what are you doing in the future, Kenneth? He said, I'm going to Stratford-upon-Avon and I'll be doing uh, Hamlet in Stratford. I'm like, what? Bang! I'm on the phone. Hello? And, uh, <laughs> and he mentioned this. No one knew about it. The theatre were going... That's not for another year that he's coming and the tickets aren't even on sale or anything. It's not in the schedule. He just he just knew, obviously, he spoke to his agent. So I was waiting for those tickets to come out. And my, my dad said, here's my credit card. We're all going to go. So I saw Kenneth Branagh, and I don't know, he hasn't done much in the theatre since then. I saw Kenneth Branagh do Hamlet. Wow. In Stratford-upon-Avon at the theatre, and he's done a movie of Hamlet since then, obviously, influenced by me going there. He must have thought, oh, this place, <laughs> my, this place like my Hamlet's in the theatre, I'll do a movie. <laughs> so um, I'm there, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, Justin. There's a very famous speech in all the Shakespeare plays. In Hamlet, the famous speech is to be or not to be. So it's to be or not to be, that is the question. And of course, it's done to death by everybody. So it's so famous. How do you make that your own and bring that to life? It's impossible. But Sir Kenneth Branagh, I mean, in the theatre, people are coughing (coughs) all the way through the play. But when Sir Kenneth Branagh went to be absolute silent, no one coughed, no one sneezed, no one was breathing, man. When Sir Kenneth Branagh said to be, they were like, or not to be. Oh, that is brilliant. Oh, man. I'll never forget that, man. I don't know, it's probably one second, but I've never been to a play before where everyone went, oh. you know, when they say, oh, you had the audience in the palm of your hand, that's what it meant. It mm. just went, and so it was, you were like, oh, man, it's incredible. And uh, a great example as well, in my live shows, then I look for these moments. I'm trying to find sometimes it's reminiscent of that moment where the, the connection that you can have with your audience, if you're very lucky, if everybody in the band has done well, you've all locked together you've really moved people there are times when there's a moment like that or if you're lucky a few moments where everyone forgets themselves and they're with you Mm. they're with you on every word and that's absolute magic and i'm very very lucky with what i do my fans they don't just come to watch me they come to be with me and become part of what I do. So you come into Blaze Bailey, you're part of the show. There's no, there's nothing without us together. There's nothing really. There's just a guy screaming his head off. <laughs> well said. Yeah, you know, oh, look, it's so important. Everything's like, oh, look at me. You come and be part of it. And he's, yeah, I feel like that. Yeah, he's, that's what I'm thinking, and he's thinking it. Yeah. 
that's that's when it works. Right. That's when it, it's and you know I'm so lucky that I have plenty of those magical moments with my fans where there's just times when people sing the lyric and you go, I can't believe that that's the lyric I wrote. Yeah, I could imagine. It, and it means a lot, man. It's very, very humbling. So, Blaze, this is something I like to ask everyone, just because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? That's a that's a, a great question, but it's very ugly as well, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. yeah, it is. You know, the kind of the, the kind of things. Well, I would say bananas. <laughs> would be yeah, would be one over bananaization. <laughs> you know, if you're forced to have too many bananas or bananas while you're already eating something that you shouldn't be eating, maybe apples. It's, uh, I remember a policeman came to the door and uh, said to my mother, your son has been stealing apples from that man's garden. And my mum said to me, have you been stealing apples from that man's garden? No, mum. I said, there you go, officer. He always tells the truth. She closed that door and she smacked me around the head and said, if you ever bring the police here again, I'll kill you. <laughs> so, so maybe, yeah. I never stole another apple though, man. I never stole. I don't condone violence at all, at all. But I can't, you know, I learned my lesson. Those two apples and bananas, but you know they're my two favourite fruits now. So how things change? That's crazy. <laughs> so you, you've mentioned your mother several times, Blaze. Was she uh, musically inclined at all? Is that where you think you got well, it from? My mom had a very eclectic taste in music, but she always had music, and we'd go to the record store shopping every week. And at the end of the shop, see what money we got left, and she would say, "Right, do you want to choose uh, a record?" and I could buy a single. Or she would buy something, and we'd take it home, and we, we'd play it. We always had a record player. So my mom loved music. She wasn't a musical person as such. You know, we didn't have any instruments around the house, but she loved listening to music, and so did my grandmother. And my grandmother was a fan, not a fan, I mean, more than that, I think, for people in that era. Mario Lanza was her favourite singer, the great Mario Lanza, who, of course, was an influence on Elvis Presley, mm. in a way. And it's like, be my love, and with your kisses set me burning. And she would just swoon at anything to do with Mario Lanza. And I suppose these things are just with you. You don't choose them. They're just there because, as a child... They're just going in. And my mother listened to everybody from Bob Marley, from, well, not Bob Marley wasn't even around then. She listened to reggae artists and she listened to musical theatre. She listened to some pop music and, and everything. So all sorts of music I was exposed to in us very early years. And I was very lucky with the charts. We used to have in the UK every Sunday afternoon, evening, top 40. If you were in the charts, you were in that top 40 rundown, even if you weren't on mainstream radio in the week, because they were calculated on the sales in the shop. Mm. So fans mostly put those songs in the chart. So Motorhead was in the chart, Maiden was in the chart, Judas Priest was in the chart. A lot of great artists, Sex Pistols started, they were in the charts with a lot of punk albums, a lot of energy, as well as the normal crap that you always get. But a lot of energy was in the charts when I was starting to get into music and come into my teenage years and start thinking about music and become more serious. And it was always a background that I had this music with energy. So that when I left school, got my first real job, I was already affected by the energy 
of metal, of rock music. And and then as I got older, as I became, you know, into my 20s, and I started seeing bands and having that feeling of a big electric guitars, then that was it for me, I think. So, Blaze, what about your very first time on stage, whatever you consider that to be, the church play or second grade or whatever you consider that to be? Did it go off without a hitch? First time on stage? That's ch- Well, I was in the school play a couple of times, yeah. That was, uh, that was fun. But I suppose musically, band-wise, then we had a, like a little garden fate. It was, where can we put the, the band on? We, you know, just... A bunch of kids really and we played a guard of fate and then we played an a, a car owners convention where we just did like three or four covers and we but we were so lucky at that time there were 20 bands in our area playing original music some bands played covers there were no tribute bands back then but mostly people wanted to play their own music, get a deal, and get in the charts. Right. That was it. Nobody was just trying to go do it. You'd have a, a few covers bands or a few, or you'd play a few covers in your set because you hadn't got enough original material. What we consider in Wolfsbane, uh, I consider to be our first serious proper attempt at being doing a, my own show was um, Tamworth Arts Centre, we hired Tamworth Art Centre, tiny, tiny little theatre, 100 seats, cost £100 to hire it. You got the lighting engineer with that. You took your own money. And Jace Edwards, the guitarist, and Jeff Haley, the bass player, they were at school together. They got their friends from school to come. And with the mums and dads, we sold out our first proper show 100 people we sold that out and we made enough money from that to do our very first demo wow and that show was that was just kind of crazy and we've done a song about that show called smoke and red light i used to work in a hotel at the time there was a a dj that did the weddings and functions and i said to the dj are you using your smoke machine this weekend and he said, no. I said, can I borrow your smoke machine? He goes, yeah, okay. So he lent me his smoke machine. So it's our first gig. It's a tiny little theatre. It's got curtains going across it. I'd said to the, the guy on the lighting, I said, can I have red lights and white lights? And that's it. And he goes, yeah, no problem. I said, and will you change it from white to red? And he goes, yeah, no problem. So, so there we are. We're behind the curtains, and I would say, guys, I've got this smoke machine from a friend at work. I'm going to put it on now. And man, that smoke machine, tiny little thing, woof. You, you couldn't see anything. Nothing. <laughs> and then it's like, the curtains open, and all you saw was massive amount of smoke filling the auditorium, because it was tiny. Just massive amounts. No smoke alarms, otherwise it would have been a fiber gate. Just massive amount of smoke and red light everywhere. And go, I can't see my fingers. Well, just do it anyway. <laughs> you know, it was just crazy, crazy. And that was our first concert. And the smoke cleared by the second song. And we were, we were doing it and just singing really natural and just doing all 10 of our own songs that we had made ourselves. And, Oh, it was uh, incredible. And then Jeff Haightley from All Spain, years and years later, he, he, he's come out, he goes, oh, I got an idea for a song. I goes, oh, what? He goes, Smoke and Red Light. He said, about our first gig. I said, bloody hell. And you know what? And it's a great song. And it's the true story of how we started in Wolf Spain. Wow. story. <laughs> so, Smoke and Red Light. I, I was born in the smoke and red light, and man, it's it's a true story, and it picks up perfectly. It's a Jeff Haley came up with half it, and then he just said, oh, "I'll get some more lyrics for this," and I, and it just turned out absolutely beautiful. So it's nice, and when we do it, 
it's a really interesting song very short intro you got to be right on it to get in that vocal into a one two three like that <laughs> and like, you just go you go if you start listening to it one two three there you go you're supposed to be in there right. ah! <laughs> oh it's uh, yeah that's what i think it's tamworth art center i forget the year now but uh 80 something maybe 80 84 I think you uh I think you formed Wolfsbane in eighty four. Did you guys already know each yeah, other? Yeah, but it was it, it wasn't me. What it was is Jeff Haitley and Jace Edwards. Jace Edwards was thirteen at the time. I think Jeff was fifteen, sixteen, something like that. Um they'd they'd got the band together at school, the two of them, um, just trying out different people and trying to get a band together. Um, they had a pretty strong idea about what they wanted to do. They put a little ad in the music section of the local paper, heavy metal singer required, no experience necessary. I went along, I think I was the only one. I thought I was singing like Ronnie James Dio. In fact, what I was doing was screaming as if someone was attacking me with a dead cat. And... <laughs> I I got the I got the job, man. I got the job, and then they came up with the name Wolfsbane, and we were on our way. And I suppose my driving ambition, my passion, and everybody had the attitude. We were in the back of Jeff's garage. That was it. In the back of his garage with six watt amps. That's it. And you put the six watt amps on top of the cupboard to make it sound louder. That was it. And I would just start like anybody else, back of the garage. Yeah. That was it. Back of Jeff's garage. But you know what? That we were like, ten songs, let's write ten songs, then we could do a gig. And that was it. We we just had this this driving ambition and a melodic sense. We always wanted to write catchy songs with a good melody and you know, make the interesting lyrics as interesting as they could be right. with the amount of life experience that we had. And you know, you just Look back at those moments, and all you were doing was pushing and playing and trying to get better. They're just great moments. Great, great moments. Make your first demo, copy it yourself, sticker it up, sell it. Make right. the money for the next lot of demos to sell yourself to someone. Make enough money to get your T-shirts printed that you sell yourself to your friends and make your family buy them. And then you've got enough for your next T-shirts. Then you've got enough to do a demo in a big studio. 24 tracks. Wow. That's it. It's it just, you know, the same way that everybody then did it. Now it's a bit different. But I think, yeah, I don't, I don't take credit for forming the band. It really was Jason Jeff. And it started at school. Mm. And I was just lucky to have that moment in time where I just fitted. I was the piece, the perfect piece for that part of the puzzle, and we fitted together. And, you know, it was just, that was it. We were, we had a, a lot of luck, family support. My mom, think, well, she's gone now. She was incredibly supportive of everything that I did. Of course I could do it. There was never any question. And I must have been awful. Well, I know I was. We taped some of those shows. I was awful at some of them back then. There was no question in my mum's mind, no question that I was going to do it. So it's you know, an incredible feeling. Sometimes that's all a kid needs is someone to have that belief in them because a lot of people don't have that. Yeah, I had plenty of people say to me, you can't sing. You're never going to make it. You'll never make it as a singer. Why don't you just give up? Plenty of people, but never my mum. Right. The important one. <laughs> yeah. So, Blaze, uh, a, lot, a majority of my guests are made up of musicians and actors. So, both professions that could potentially deal with stage fright. Was that ever an issue for you, and how did you always, become it? Always, and it still is. Oh. Always. Uh, yeah, man. I, I have nerves. Have you interviewed Damien Lewis? I have not. No, because he's singing, you know, now. Oh. He's, yeah, he's singing. He's on tour. I'd like to go and see him. He, he's got a good voice on him. Yeah, I had a lot of nerves, and I still do get a lot of nerves. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of upside down. People over the years 
I think you're privileged when you get backstage. Sometimes it's a lot easier because it's a shitty little gig that, you know, you just wander around. Oh, you're the band. You know, that kind of thing. And people think generally that the idea is, well, what do you do before a go? Oh, yeah, you're really getting yourself up. Oh, come on, let's go for it, man. Let's get ready. We're really going to take the roof off this place. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. No. For me, every time I did that, I went on and I forgot the lyric. I forgot where I was. I lost my place in the song. Every time, oh, oh, no, it's not for me. I have nerves. And for me, the best way to deal with that is to be a surgeon. And I am coming, and this is ironic, really, because it's the same metaphor I used before I had a heart attack. I'm coming to my audience and what I'm going to do, I'm going to get to their heart, I'm going to dust it off, blow some magic onto it and give it back to them and they're going to feel better. They're going to walk out of that show and they're going to go, you know what? I'm glad I saw that. I feel better. My job is to get to their heart through their ears and that's how I look at it, right? I've got to go on. I've got to get them. I have to get my passion, my emotion, direct it in the right way. And when I don't, when I get overexcited, I just, yeah, you know, I'm in the music or what, I just forget where I am mm. completely. You know, I'm just the idiot singer where I, where I could just see the band going, oh, no. He's got overexcited. He's lost his place. So, so that's that's the way I deal with it. And so many times people have said to me, oh, you seem so miserable. Aren't you excited about the gig? I'm like, but if I get excited, I'll fuck the gig up. So of course I'm not excited. I'm there, man. I've got to, I've got to operate on people. I've got to get people's hearts. I'm, not exci- I'm, I'm full of determination and focus. And then at the end of the show, if I've done my job, I have the most incredible feeling of satisfaction. Yes, I did my job. I did what I wanted to do. I managed to get my lyric, my songs that I've crafted over to people and show them that, yeah, they can fight suicidal thoughts. They can battle their way through. There's an extra... There's an extra beat. You can do it. You can live a dream. You can try at least. And in the trying, there's something. So that's where I am at my concert. But I I struggle with my nerves. Really struggle. And I don't really enjoy rehearsing. But I have to practice and practice and practice on my own. As well as make the most of the rehearsals I have with the band to get myself somewhere near the level of confidence where nerves won't knock me out and go, oh, where am I? What am I supposed to be doing? It's just, I don't, you know, if I could trade that for something else, I would. But I suppose that feeling of nerves and being prepared, it quietens me, it focuses me. And when... I've been focused. There's a couple of shows that that we've done where I'm like, I am going to get your heart out of your chest. Then we've had incredible reactions. It's been brilliant. It bleeds, you know, for folks who may be listening to this who have been living under a rock and not familiar. Can you just take us through the process of how you landed the vocalist job for Iron Maiden? Well, in Wolfsbane, we managed to get a deal with an American label. We're, uh, we're uh, four, four guys from a small town in England, but we have a good demo and we have quite a following. We're unsigned, but we get plenty of gigs and support slots. And somebody noticed us in a magazine in America and we were signed up and we did a a couple of albums 
And then we were offered the support slot with Iron Maiden as Wolfsbane. And it was 31 shows in the UK at small theatres. The last time they would ever play small places in the UK. The last time ever. And we were lucky enough to get that support slot. And you know what? I <laughs> would try to blow Bruce Dickinson off the stage every night. In Wolfsbane, we were just so ambitious. And Steve Harris said to me one night, he said, it's really good to see a band have a go. It keeps us on our toes. Wow. Uh, what, that, what, that's a warrior right there. And, uh, of course, you can't blow Iron Maiden off at all because the wealth of music, incredible music that they have, and the professionalism and depth of performance, but that never stopped us trying. And uh, they had nothing to prove, but they still tried every night to prove that, to prove they had nothing to prove. It was brilliant. I kind of got on with the guys, and then, man, that was the best tour I ever did was supporting Iron Maiden. It was just some happy, happy times on that tour. Years later, Bruce Dickinson left. They said, right, if you want to audition, send us a taping. So the, the short story is I'd already given them my CDs at the end of that tour. And I phoned up. I said, look, I'd love to have an audition. And they said, Okay, we'll think about it. And then they listened to everybody. They got back to me. I was one of 12 people that was selected to audition for Iron Maiden. And I went along and I thought, you know what? For an hour, because you had to learn 10 songs that were usually in the set. I thought for an hour, I am in Iron Maiden. Mm. I knew all the songs. I knew the drum parts to every song. And so I thought... I'm, I, that's it. I can't do any more now. I know the song's about as good as I'm good at. So that was it. And I just enjoyed that hour. And I sang those songs the best I could. And I thought, well, I've done my best. And I was like, then I got a second audition with a few other guys. I called back to try you in the studio. You had to record some things. And then after that, they said, yeah, okay, you've got it. And that was just incredible. I never thought that I would be the vocalist for Iron Maiden because my voice is so different to Bruce Dickinson. It, it come from a different place. Yeah. From, from where, you know, uh, singing. And it, it's so different. But I think what happened was that breakup was so big, but also it was at a moment in the band's career where they were kind of musically changing, going through. They were from the caterpillar to the butterfly. Yeah. They were going through that kind of change. So they had a new voice with me to start down the road of the progressive era of Iron Maiden, which was the X Factor and Virtual Eleven, the albums that I did. Nothing was written. No music was written at all. When I joined the band, Steve Harris said, I don't care who writes the songs. I don't care who writes the music. It just has to be great music. And my song, Man on the Edge, that I worked on with Yannick Gers, was chosen as the first single from the album. And it became number one in some charts around the world and number one in a lot of the rock charts. So it was incredible. And we started the tour in uh, Israel, I think it was, when Israel and all around Mediterranean and up through Romania and all of that. It just incredible, incredible experience. But I, I never thought I'd get it, but I absolutely loved it. And the guys, great, great musicians, wonderful people. I had so much help and support. And you could say probably maybe 80% of the fans in different countries around the world were like, okay, let's see what this guy's got. It's a new guy, but he is a singer. Let's see what he's got. And about 20% of people hated me. And it was almost as if those 20% of people, as if I 
had forced Bruce Dickinson out of the band. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you killed hello. Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Hello. He's left. He decided to go and do something else, leaving an op, uh, you know, something open for somebody else. Somebody else had to join or whatever. But that, that's what it was like. And I understand that because the passion that people have, if you have a girlfriend that you love, she leaves you, you don't want to see that girl walking down the street with another guy looking really happy. That's not good. Right. You you know, and that's the feeling. It's that kind of feeling. I think some fans, their favorite singer left their favorite band. And that is hard to take when you're a dedicated, loyal fan of a band. No matter who it is. I may know anybody else. They take it personal so, almost. Yeah, so it's. I think that's that's tough for anybody because as metalheads and rock fans, our music means so much more to us than pop fans. Because right. you don't just go, "Oh, I like that song." We go, "I am invested in this artist and everything they do, and no matter what the fashion does, or what the weather does, or how the world changes." I still love this artist, no matter what. That's not changing. I'm still a metalhead. That's in my heart. Whereas pop fans will go, oh, that's a nice song. Who's that by? Oh, yeah, they won't buy an album. And all the, oh, that's a, it's right. a different. That's not a criticism, that's a commentary. Because there's nothing wrong with pop music. It, it does what it does. And great pop music does a great job at what it does. But it's not metal. And it's not rock. And it doesn't inspire loyalty in me. Right. Or I think a lot of people, like the way that metal and rock, we will almost die for our bands when we love them. We will die to get to see our bands. We will travel thousands of miles to see our favorite artist. Exactly. I have to see them. I have to see them. Well, where are they? Well, they're, they're playing... On the other side of the world, then I'm going on holiday to where they're playing. That's my, that's the, that's it. You know, that, that's how we are. We can't help that. We are nerdy geek collectors, <laughs> and we can't help ourselves. We have to do it. Blaze, I wanted to ask you since you know a few minutes ago we touched on stage fright. Now, how does that transfer over for you replacing Bruce? How is, is there any nervousness? Is that stage fright now amplified? There was a bit of nerves, of course, but mainly it's just it's always the music for me. I am a fan, but I'm also looking from the point of view, if I'm a fan, I want to hear my favorite songs done well. So what I wanted to do was put myself into the song, but take it a bit closer, back a little bit closer to the recording, the melody, you know, and that. so that's what I did, really. I, it was more... It, yeah, there were big gigs, but I played some big gigs. We played some big festivals yeah. and, and things like that. We made videos. I'd made videos before and things. So I think the difference, it, there was a lot of nerves, but for me, it's about performing well for the fans to be the best I could be for the fans. So no matter what, at the end of the night, I could say I did my best, whatever energy i had whatever personal power that i had that was all on the stage that's it it's all up there so so that was it really the nerves was not so much about oh will people compare me to bruce it was more like will i get this song will i nail the phrasing in this will i get that phrasing in the rhythm with the guitars that it should be that it moves everyone that's where my nerves really were in maiden and it's so exciting yeah you feel uh, my favorite analogy is the sports analogy and that is if you play for an amateur team on a sunday afternoon it's still football same rules same game but if you're playing in the World Cup for your country, it's the same rules, same game, 
different pressure. So uh, the X Factor Blaze contains one of my personal favorite Iron Maiden songs, one of the best Maiden songs in general, Sign of the Cross. I wanted to ask you what you remember specifically about the songwriting process for that song. Well, musically, it's a one of the big lessons that I learned working with Steve Harris and the guys in Maiden, that the music, it's not just the solos, it's a whole section. The music is as important as the vocal, but the vocal is the most important, but the music is as important. The instrumental is as important as the melody and the vocal, but the vocal is the most important. But the instrumental is as important. So, man, that goes round until you've got something where it ceases to be just a song and it becomes a journey. And that is what Sign of the Cross is. So when you get to this big instrumental section, everything preceding that has built you into a frame of mind where if you've paid attention, you're expecting the battle of heaven and earth over the soul of a man. Man, it's just... The clouds, the sun is coming out. It's incredible. And that's it. But it was so much in the studio at the time that we all kept losing our place. It's nine minutes long, the song. And we go, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to split this into three sections. We're going to have the start. Okay? Everybody got the start. We got through that. And it's moody. And here's the thing. There's no metronome. There's no click. There's no time that the drummer is listening to. Everyone is in headphones looking at or listening to what everyone else is doing. It is five people finding the time together and fitting into that. It is absolutely 100% human to the point of being spiritual to get that connection between you. No help. Does this, let's listen back. Does it feel right? Not is it right? You get me? Yeah. Not is it right? Does it feel right? That felt good. How does it feel sound? Listen, it's good. Yeah, it's good. It feels good. Now, section two. Is it too fast? Does it feel too fast? Let's go back, do it again. Let's just bring it down. Let's ease it down. How's it? I'm bored now. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't got any energy. Okay, let's go back again. Oh, something's happening. Something is happening there. Something feels special about this. Section three, let's move on. Okay, we're picking it up. We're firing up, we're firing up. How's it feel? No, man, it's gone so fast. It's gone over a cliff. It's lost all its meaning. It's lost everything. Let's bring it back. No, man, it feels like we're dragging a dead cow behind us. We've got, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it. This feels good. Everything's good. The downstrokes, everything's together. The snap of the snap. Everything's together, and eventually we're getting there. Eleven saintly shrouded men, silhouettes stand against the sky. And there we are, and we're at the end, and there we got sign of the cross, and you've got this incredibly vibrant song, which takes you from a whisper to a battle to a whisper. And it makes complete sense. It's a beautiful song. So, Blaze, when the separation from Iron Maiden eventually happens, is it a, is it a, I guess, do they approach you and say, you know, well, Bruce is coming back, so I guess you got to get out of here. Like, how does that go? Well, I, I suppose, really, it was a lot of pressure from the business side of things. If you look at what was happening, on just take the band and the music side out of things. Let's look at what was happening in the world of music business 
When I joined Iron Maiden, EMI, possibly the most successful record company in the world at that time, sold every manufacturing plant they had. So what does that say? They don't think there's going to be CDs and records for much longer. A couple of years down the line, Black Sabbath, Reunion, Judas Priest, Reunion, Deep Purple, Reunion. EMI is saying, look, we want to get interest in Iron Maiden and we feel the only way to do that is to have a reunion. And so that then set the path for, well, there's no room for me in a reunion. And it's the same with Tim Ripper Owens, who yeah. is an incredible vocalist, inc just devastating. I worked with Tim a lot over the years. I love his voice. A devastating vocalist, incredible vocalist. But no, sorry, Tim. And it was the same for me. It's, well... We can't carry on any longer. We wish you well. We want you to do well. All of that, Bruce is coming back. And it was a blow, man. I loved being in Iron Maiden. I loved it. You know, the music for all the sacrifice and difficulty and being away and all of that. That To be in a band making that music and playing that music and those fantastic songs. Oh, man, that was tough. So... It was a difficult, difficult time. I always, I'd always been in a band. I'd always been the singer. So for a while it was like, well, what am I then? And then it was, well, I got some ideas for songs. I already know that I can write a good song because one of my songs, Man on the Edge, is number one in some countries. Right. So I can do it. I can do it. So I, I managed to get a band together, some great guys. The first album for almost all of them. And uh, we made a great album called Silicon Messiah. Completely failed. Didn't get uh, hardly any press. Got slagged off, slated by a lot of journalists. And no tour dates were booked to go with it. I did another album, concept album, which... Fantastic, produced by Andy Sneap, a wonderful producer, one of the top metal and rock producers in the world today, produced the Silicon Messiah album, then 10th Dimension album for me, then another album called Blood and Belief, fantastic album full of raw emotions and brutal music, and none of those albums got anywhere. And then that was it. There was no... The record deal I had with SPV Steam Hammer, that went. And I had to start all over again. So what would you say is the best musical advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? Well, that's a lot. I had so much help along the way. So much. But I think, I don't know if you heard of a band called Magnum. Yeah. yeah Storytellers um, Night. Yeah. And I, I know the guys. They're local, so I know the guys. And years and years ago, I met Tony Martin and Bob, not Tony Martin, Tony and Bob Catley. And Tony said to me, keep writing, keep writing. Keep, in those days, it was a dictaphone and a notepad. He said, keep writing. That was early on in my Wolfsbane days. Keep writing, because you never know when you're going to need your ideas and all of that. The last thing you want to be is there in the studio with expensive studio time booked, no ideas, nothing. And things you just come up with on the spur of the moment, some of it will be fantastic, most of it will be crap. So he said, keep writing. And I kept a, a little notebook with me and my dictaphone. Now, of course, you've got everything on your phone. I think that's it. And, you know, as I've gone through the years, that advice... I've seen other people give that advice and I've seen other people follow that. And I think, what, Ariana Grande, she's like number one, she's just put out the Guts album, is it? She's been interviewed and she says, part of my day, I write every day to use that muscle. And I, there you go. Number one, in a, number one, all over the world on the day of release. And it's that exact same advice that I had 30 years ago that I kept going. So um, friends that I meet, other songwriters, colleagues, 
you know, my my peers. What? Oh yeah, man. I write every day, or I try and write. I always write some way. I try and keep writing. Everyone. So I th I think that's probably the best advice I had, and I even wrote a song about that, and it's on my Man Who Would Not Die album. It's called The End of the Day, and it's about betraying the part of you that gets that inspiration and if you don't follow it and you don't write it down and it's like a butterfly you might see the butterflies on the warm dagger oh i'll take a look later and you, think, you know what i'd really love to see a butterfly today no man sun's not out right sun's not out it's not warm enough is that butterflies today oh but i really want no no if you want to see you should have kept writing and then you would have had your own sunshine and there would be the butterfly you could always see. That would be a beautiful song, a powerful song, something with emotion that, yeah, you got it, you nailed it on the day. But no, no, you know what? You could just sit and feel miserable and disappointed because you didn't follow the advice that you were given 30 years ago that you knew was right, right every day. Yeah, <laughs> the thing is, I we're on a. I ride a motorcycle, uh, and I'm riding with my friends sometimes, and they're looking back and they go, "Where's he gone?" And I'll be pulled over somewhere. So I go, "Okay," uh, and I'll, I'll be talking into my phone. And I'm like, "I've got to catch the ideas. Right. I have to catch the ideas." And they're just used to that now. Ah, oh, it must be singing into his phone again. <laughs> Well, Blaze, this is also something I like to ask everyone because you never know. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Oh, all the time. Really? Oh, uh, not as in in so much ghostly, but certainly the feeling that there's more. There's more. And here's the thing. I'm a science nerd in a way, and... The CERN particle accelerator in Switzerland, people think, oh, there's going to be a black hole, the world's going to disappear, and all of that. Well, they discovered, they managed to find the Higgs boson particle, which is a tiny little particle that is smaller than an atom, that is one of the things that makes up the tiny little quantum particles that make up a little tiny bit of an atom, and all of that. Hang on. These things are passing through us all the time. We can't see them, can't, can't feel it on your skin like the wind. It's just passing through us. And so the quantum field, that's all of these particles, of course, in a way, we have to be connected. There has to be more. We have to be connected. These particles are there if you believe science, if you believe the world is round, and that you can forecast the weather, these particles are there. Well, you know some people don't believe that, Blaze. <laughs> some yeah, people we don't. don't believe and you know what happens? <laughs> if you believe that the world, this is what the surgeon said to me when he came before the operation. He said, we can do surgery and we can fix up your heart, or some people don't have surgery and think they can get through it. He said, generally those people believe the world is flat. And I said to the surgeon, I said, what happens to them, Doc? Do they fall off the edge of the world? And he said, yes, I think they do. <laughs> so, of course, I was referring to the great library, the, uh, the Dio song, you know, uh, uh, the Black Sabbath song where he said, falling off the edge of the world. <laughs> but uh, he didn't quite get that reference. But anyway, so I think we are connected. We are connected. And... What I don't like is for people to say these things don't exist. It, no, it's not that at all. It's sensitivity, right? If you go, if you look, it's not even look at the ancestors. Look at people who live in tribes and live in the jungles and live on the plains, live out there in the world. People like... The Zulus and Maasai that walk across and have herds of cows and things like this. Not people who live in cities right. or corrugated things. but And the ancestors and the Native Americans who lived on the plains and all of this business. Well, when you haven't got all this concrete, 
and mechanical things and electricity and all of these things around you, don't you think that you're going to be more sensitive to everything else? And if there's something that connects us, aren't you going to be able to feel it better? So that's what it is, in my opinion. It's just the sensitivity and there's so much evidence. Like some people have a, a severe head injury and then they can see the future. They can see, they're connected to things. I mean, some mediums are a total fake, but they're, they're great at reading people. Other mediums are reading you, but also sensing what's happening and they can see things. They can see those fragments and whispers from the other side that have things unsaid that they still need to say to you. Man, I, I think it's it's so much a part of what's going on, but we don't see it. And if we lived in different ways, we'd be more sensitive and open to it. I, I feel like I, I, I'm not one for, oh, they're watching me or something like this, but I am one for the multi-dimensional universe and going to another dimension and coming back and just finding a way to connect from that other dimension that you've gone to, to tell me, to make me aware of something. And instinct and your gut reaction, the amount of times that you don't follow your gut, your initial reaction, and it just turns out shit. Right. Right. You thought your way through it. You thought your way through it. Didn't feel right. Didn't go right. And I work with music. Music's my life. That's frequencies. Frequencies of music, different notes that we're doing, my voice vibrating at different levels, connecting at different levels with people. Vibrations affect us in different ways. I have to believe that there's more. And I believe that I'm connected to that through my work. I can feel this other side sometimes, these other things, and connected to other people. My fiance and I, so many times when we'll say, oh, and that's exactly what I was just gonna say. Right. This is a connection, you, you, you get in time. Well, that can happen with a lot of things in my opinion. So, yes, I absolutely believe in the supernatural, in ghosts, in the other side, in everything. I'm not sensitive to it like some people, but working in music, working with sounds and my voice, I feel it. And, well, Blaze, just to put a bow on this here, just tell folks what's on the horizon for you and where they can find you. Well, I've got a new album. It's a live album. It's called Damage Strange, Different and Live. And these words come from a song called Warrior, which is on my War Within Me album. And War Within Me is my last studio album. It's about fighting suicidal thoughts, finding a way to hold on, take another step, finding a way to get up when you feel it's impossible and about people who have done that and some scientists and stories and side two of this is some of my songs with Iron Maiden from my past going back there but my interpretation so as a live album these songs take on their own identity Outside of the studio, there's no tapes, there's no backup. It's 100% live when you come to see Blaze Bailey. And that's what this album represents. It's taking the song from the studio and it comes to life with my fans. And that's what Damaged, Strange, Different and Live is. And the lyric, Damaged, Strange, and different comes from my song Warrior, which is about ignoring the classifications and things that people say about you. You're stupid. You are useless. You're nothing. No, no. 
Don't let their words be the ones that echo in your head and go round. Let my words echo in your head and go round. Because what I'm telling you is that you choose and make a choice. Choose to be the warrior. Mm. You don't always win, but you do always fight. Well said, I like that. Get yourself into that mindset. Refuse to be what they say. Define yourself. Don't let them define you. Don't be defined. Define yourself with one word, warrior. That's who you are. That's who I think you are because you came to my gig and supported me and got me through shit and I'm living my dream because you made the effort to come to my gig and see me and buy my t-shirt and buy my CD. If you wanna hear my music, you don't know nothing about me, I'm on all the streaming services, Spotify, go to Blaze Bailey, best album to check out, War Within Me. Start with that one and go from there. Give me three songs, that's all I'm asking. Give me three songs. Listen to three of my songs from all within me. That's it. Then you never have to worry about Blaze Bailey again. You never have to talk to anybody about me. Nothing. But do this. Listen to three of my songs from all within me. Then decide if I'm worthy of your support. Definitely are, Blaze. I think you'll hook them within three songs. (laughs) I hope so, man. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. I'm so lucky to do what I do. I'm so lucky, but what I do is literally impossible. But I do it anyway, and that's because I have incredible fans that have supported me through, man, through the worst times I ever had. My fans have still said to me, when's your next record? When can I see you in concert? I'm so lucky. Well, Blaze, like I said, man, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I know it's getting late over there. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, sir. I really appreciate it. And once I get it posted, I'll send it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back when I get my new album, man. It'll happen. Guaranteed. Thank you very, very much. All right, Blaze. Thanks, man. Good luck with your show. Thank you. Good luck. Cheers. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Blaze. As always, thanks for listening. And we'll see you back next time monsters madness and magic (laughs) welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the night demon heavy metal podcast is for you step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.